This is Anchored in Christ, the sermon podcast that gives you hope in the gospel as an anchor for your soul. Brought to you from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. As Dr. Childs goes into the Whitfield pulpit, I would like to tell you a little bit more about him. He is uh, the pastor at the uh, Antioch Baptist Church in Cincinnati. He is the father of five, Simone being his eldest, uh, through her advanced studies as a 20-year-old, is a rising senior, um, studying to be a psychiatrist. His youngest, Madison, I have met on Zoom, she's just turned one years old, going on 12, we think. (laughs) and as smart as a whip. Um, His wife is a classical pianist and she teaches in the public school Spanish. It is an amazing family and I have to say, um, as the professor, uh, uh, first tenured African American at Northern Kentucky University, the Department of Social Studies and Teacher Education, I have seen the song that we just sang exhibited in your life. You have deeply and profoundly impacted me. And it's, a, it's an honor to be a friend and to be in relationship with you. And I hope that this is the beginning of a long relationship with this church. So welcome to Dr. Childs. Good morning. Good morning. To, to my friends here at Old South Church and back home, to First Antioch Baptist in Cincinnati, Ohio. Our second reading is from Matthew 6, 19-34. It reads as such, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness. How great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear, Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. 
But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive for first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now we're going to share a song, my daughter and I, How Great Thou Art. It'll sound familiar. Oh, 
I told my daughter Simone that next time she would be singing, I'm about to retire. That's the singer there. <laughs> Good morning to you again. I'm coming from, we're going to continue the Sermon on the Mount series from the theme, Making the Good Life Real. Today I'm speaking from the subtopic, Overcoming Materialism and Indifference in Our Life. Simone, can you do me a favor? Grab my cell phone right there. I'm already breaking protocol. This is my timer. Thank you. And then also I have a brand new phone, so here we go. I don't know, I don't know if you know anything about sneaker culture or the notion of being a sneakerhead. The young people may know what I'm referring to. It is a recent phenomenon where people buy, sell, and trade and collect expensive designer or rare sneakers and make a considerable amount of money from them. There are literally teenagers via the internet and social media that easily make six figures, a six-figure income from the lucrative sneaker trade. One guy on the website SideHustleNation.com boasted of making as much as $10,000 a month flipping or buying or selling sneakers. I call it flipping. Just to give you a further idea of how much money is made from the shoe sales, I will share a few examples of prices of certain highly sought-after sneakers. For example, the Jordan 3 Retro Legends of Summer worn by music artists Justin Timberlake and Jay-Z, sold for $8,500. And the Nike Dunk SB Low Stable NYC Pigeon Shoes sold for $9,600 a pair. Another example are the Jordan 4 Retro M&M Carhartt Shoes that sold for $11,750. The shoes were created as a collaboration between Michael Jordan, hip-hop artist Eminem, and Carhartt Clothing Store. And then there's Lil Uzi Vert. He's a hip-hop artist that developed designer shoes, and I'm not making this up, called Satan Shoes. And if you watch his video, it is not for Christians. <laughs> It is sort of an homage to Satan, but his shoes, when he first released them, he got in trouble with Nike for copyright infringement, but his shoes, the, the first few minutes he released them, he sold them for $1,250, and he sold out within 15 minutes. I think the phenomena of sneakerhead culture is the perfect example of the runaway materialism that has come to largely define U.S. popular culture. This is indicative, indicative of how we attach superficial value to objects or material things. In Christian terms, it is a sort of idolatry. The celebration and worship of worthless material things that at their core have no real value. Shoes were designed to be a functional item to protect our feet from the elements to keep us 
from the cold to keep us from stubbing our toe and to protect us and even maybe enclose the smell that feet may emanate. They're a very functional item. Trust me, go without shoes. Maybe you're from the South and you didn't wear shoes. I'm, I'm near Kentucky and you, if you go deep enough you, in the summer, you'll see people not wearing shoes very much. But if you don't think shoes have a, an important role as far as functionality, go a few weeks without wearing shoes and then um, see if people want to still be around you. <laughs> they won't. But shoes were designed for that function, but our society has transformed them into a status symbol. Let us examine what God's word says about materialism and how Christians can overcome its alert. My first point, don't seek earthly treasures. The hyper-materialism behind sneaker culture is exactly the sort of mindset Christ seemed to be addressing in our text today. Early in chapter 6, Christ dealt with themes such as almsgiving, prayer, fasting, etc., and so forth. But now we come to a discussion in our study of the Sermon of the Mount about wealth, material things, a study of our value system and what our priority should be, and to top it all off, a conversation about anxiety and worry, which is very fitting for our 21st century culture. In verses 19 and 20, 19 through 21, Christ admonishes us to pay attention to what we value. Be mindful of what, tre what we treasure. He wants us as Christians to be sure our heart and priorities are in the right place. We must be kingdom-minded. Indeed, Christ was critical of the multitude in John 6 and 26 through 27 when they began to seek him for only natural things and not spiritual. He stated, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life. We should not store up earthly treasures that will ultimately grow rust and decay. It is a futile effort to depend on such things looking back at our primary text in Matthew 6. Now, I am Baptist, uh, born and raised, and I have a little Pentecostal sprinkling in there, um, <laughs> but I do preach often at uh, Presbyterian churches. Uh, my, I work with the Cincinnati Presbytery, but at our church, if you, if you feel comfortable, you can say amen every amen. now and then. Okay. Let's practice. Say amen, amen. saints. Amen. Say it again. Amen. All right. You don't have to, but if you, you can throw it out there every now and then. <laughs> now, Chuck Smith points out in his commentary that Jesus is not just speaking about money here. Smith states when we usually think of treasures, we think in terms of money only. But if we only look at this verse in terms of money, we miss some of the point. We have things that we say that we treasure that go beyond money. Smith goes on to say, quote, it is often said of certain possessions that they are priceless, like the diamond commercials, priceless. You've seen that. We sometimes, he goes on to say, we sometimes treasure our jobs, 
We can get so absorbed, absorbed in the desire for success that the eternal things are set aside. They take a second place in our life. It can be said of family also. It can be said of our homes. It can be said of ministry success. We can become so absorbed with building a large church that this ambition becomes the consuming passion of our lives. But make no mistake, Christ is also clearly warning against the pitfalls of wealth. Some people in the first century crowd would have been surprised that Jesus was describing earthly treasures as worthless because like many in our society today, they would have equated material gain to blessings from God, to godliness. And they would have equated poverty to being cursed. Paul in 1 Timothy 6 and 5 offered rebuke for perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds who were destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, for such withdraw thyself. Paul goes on to say that in verse 6, that godliness with contentment is great gain. Money in and of itself is not evil. It is simply a tool. Ecclesiastes 10 and 19 states, a feast is made for laughter, wine maketh merry, but money answereth all things. Money can resolve a lot of issues and is often necessary, but we must not set our heart upon it. It can repair houses, erect structures for wonderful nonprofits, repair and build churches. Even from a practical day-to-day -day perspective, we can buy brand new sneakers for our children or grandchildren when they're headed back to school, but they do not have to be a $200 pair of Michael Jordan shoes or LeBron's. God provides finances for us to make a living, but we must be good stewards with it. And further, Christ cautions us to not set our heart upon it. The verse that we, the first verse that we dealt with today, 1 Timothy 6 and 10, is often misquoted, and I see social media memes that says money is the root of all evil. And that's incorrect. It's, I had a mentor when I was growing up and we were young, we would say, you know, money is the root of all evil. And he would always, he had a funny voice. He would always correct us. He would say, the love of money is the root of all evil. And so I can hear my mentor saying that. And the, the, the scripture, we cited it today, talks about all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. We must use the tool of finance wisely with integrity. Back in our Matthew 6 text, verse 24 makes a very clear juxtaposition that helps drive our point home. Christ discusses the notion of serving two masters. In the passage, he uses an earthly idea to demonstrate a spiritual one. Comparing the natural slave-master slave dialectic to the notion of being a servant of God versus a servant of wealth. Jesus states, no one can serve two masters, for a slave will hate, either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The B clause of verse 24 makes it plain and states plainly, you cannot serve God in wealth. The Greek word rendered here as wealth in the New Revised Standard Version and memon in the King James Version is interesting 
and really the operative word for that passage. The King James translation of mammon is closer to the Greek word mamonas. Mamonas. Mamonas is, the, is of Aramaic origin and is a word that describes the embodiment of wealth or wealth personified, wealth deified, if you will. The notion of serving or worshiping riches and pursuing them at any cost. It reminds us of the materialistic culture of the entertainment industry, the celebrity culture, corporate America, trappings of the so-called American dream. Money falsely promises comfort, a closet full of new sneakers, fun, excitement, pleasure, and can easily become an idol. First Timothy 6 and 9 states, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and they snare into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Riches can dull the senses, help us justify and rationalize sin, making us spiritually lazy where we no longer have time to pray or even we forget to pray. Riches and financial gain have a way of making the Bible and the church seem outdated and irrelevant. We might say God wants me to pursue wealth. We justify it. No wonder Matthew 13 speaks of the deceitfulness of riches. And just a few points here, a few short points. Secondly, we must guard against a materialistic worldview. In the English language, when we want to describe a belief system, we use ism, I-S-M. We put the suffix I-S-M after. We have paganism, Confucianism, socialism, capitalism, and racism, classism. Thus, the word materialism is very fitting for this discussion today. A related word I would like to borrow from my ninth grade history teacher is me-ism. He always talked about me-ism, the worship of self. But it might be said that materialism would be a word that would help define the worldview of our culture today, even in American Christendom. The idol of materialism is subtle and deceitful. We are not, if we're not careful, we will spend much of our time concerned and worried about material things and how we can get more. Thirdly, do not worry about material things. The last section of chapter 6 addresses this issue of anxiety. Christ uses beautiful personification in our text, birds sowing and reaping, as well as lilies spinning and toiling. He uses nature to teach us a lesson not to worry. He says that the birds are more beautifully arrayed than Solomon. Indeed, Proverbs 6 states, in all thy ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct our path so we don't have anything to worry about. That's easier said than done, of course. When you have bills due, when you are in college trying to matriculate through your university program, when you have small children, when we have the pandemic, when we, have, when we have most of the children online learning. But Christ still says, do not worry. Much of our time, in most cases, is spent concerned about our careers and financial gain, even as Christians. Think out back where our culture is when we're concerned about purchasing a $1,000 pair of sneakers while the rest of the world is concerned about where they will find clean water. It's all about priorities. 
Fourthly, material things have no spiritual value. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul helps us. He states, for we brought nothing into this world. And if I were back home, I would say, and it is certain we can carry nothing with us. In my role as pastor, I have preached at all too many funerals as of late. The death toll of COVID-19 has been unnerving. But some of the toughest funerals I've had to eulogize have been of young people that have been victims of gun violence in our streets in Cincinnati. But by far the hardest funeral I had to preach was my own father's funeral, the late Reverend Hezekiah Childs. Indeed, that was very tough, but some say it was my best sermon. And I rarely say God told me to do something, but a couple years before that, the Lord told me that he was going to take my father and the Holy Spirit whispered in my heart and said, I want you to preach the funeral. And I thought I heard the Lord wrong. And it was tough to do. But indeed, if anything, the death of loved ones has a way of reminding us of the brevity of life and the futility of material things. It reminds us to keep the main thing the main thing, and that is Christ. Indeed, the allure of seductive, the, the allure and seductive whisper of materialism promises a pipe dream, a lie. It promises us that if we achieve a certain income level, acquire certain devices, a new iPhone, if we build certain property, if we obtain a certain degree from a certain school or even meet the right person, our quality of life will be infinitely better from that point on. That is the lie and seductive of material, seduction of materialism. But it is deceptive. Have you ever worked for something so long and so earnestly, and when you finally received it, it was underwhelming? It reminds me of Christmas and in anticipation. We start now in October with the Christmas race towards opening gifts. And we wait and we buy gifts and we cook and we go to the store and we do last minute shopping and we wait in this build up of anticipation. It's a wonderful time of the year. It's the most wonderful time of the year. We sing all the wonderful songs. And then December 25th comes and you open the gifts and you may have gotten your favorite present that you always wanted. And at first it's really, really exciting. But by the end of the day, it's like a letdown. And then a couple days later, you're back at work, and it's like you hadn't even thought about it. And that reminds us of the insatiable thirst, the insatiable thirst that we have for material things. But Christ comes to temper that. The thrill wears off by the end of the day. Such is the deceptive nature of acquiring wealth in material things. Material things only give temporary happiness based on what happens. Happiness is often based on what happens. But real joy comes from a life of Christ. We go from event to event, from object to object, to from adrenaline rush to adrenaline rush. But true joy comes from a life of Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen. Physical things have no spiritual value. Job put it this way. 
Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Fifthly, Christ sees our true value. In the U.S., in the Western world in general, we place a high value on money. Material things in one's economic status, in, status. indeed, we often size a person up or deem them successful based on how much money they have. Our society has this notion of someone's net worth, basically placing value on someone in monetary terms. In many cases, people are so shallow and materialistic, they actually judge someone based on the type of shoes they have on, specifically in some sectors, in high schools, universities, social media, the film industry. Then we also have this idea that we do not make enough money and could always use new phone. <laughs> We're talking about materialism and I have a brand new phone up there. Thank you, God. <laughs> then we also have this idea that we do not make enough money. But consider this. One way the Pew Research Center measures wealth is by how much income a person makes per day. Just to give, you, give us an idea, the Pew Research study included 111 countries, which account for 88% of the global population. They divided people into five income groups. People making $2 or less were poor, low income, $2 to $10 a day, Middle income, $10 to $20 a day. Upper income, $20 to $50 a day in terms of what they spent. And then high income was considered people that spent $50 or more. The global middle income range translates to an annual income of $14,000 to $30,000. The U.S. stands head and shoulders above the rest of the world. More than half, 56% of Americans were high income by the global standard living on more than $50 a day. Consider what we might spend each day for groceries, food, lunch, gasoline, utilities, entertainment, cell phones, furniture, cars, and so on. For many of us, it is well above $50 a day. But Christ looks at the person and not what material things one has like we do. Christ probably does not approve of sneakerhead culture. It is an embodiment or archetype of materialism. Sixthly, my last point, unpacking Christianity in the American dream. The late Professor James Cone of Union Theological Seminary stated, it is ironic that America, with its history of injustice of the poor, especially the black man and the Indian, prides itself on being a Christian nation. Many American churches have lost their way as it relates to social justice and helping out our fellow humans, we politicize and make excuses on why we're not helping the least of these. In the church, we often conflate Christianity with middle-class values. We conflate Christianity with capitalism. We conflate it with American values and even Eurocentric norms. For example, when we envision church, and there's nothing wrong with these things, we may envision it as a, a youth group or a suburban cookout or corporate jobs or going to college and these things in and of itself are not wrong but they're not the gospel there's much more when we have perhaps 
a working class or a person that does not look like ourselves or a poor person come in our midst, sometimes we look at them strange. When we conflate capitalism and the pursuit of wealth with Christian theology, we form an idol, a belief system or worldview called materialism. Something about the pursuit of wealth and being materialistic makes us indifferent toward the need of others. I think in our churches we have to unpack middle-class Eurocentric values from what it means to be a Christian. I grew up in an inner-city black church, a small church, and often people would look down upon our church, and white folks were uncomfortable coming to our side of town. They thought it was dangerous, but I want to tell you, I went to a lot of Bible studies. I went to a Sunday service, and I never got shot. I never got mugged. Sometimes it's our fear and anxiety that keep us separate. And we may have different liturgies and different ways that we do church through different cultural lens. And that's okay. But the sin is if the church imposes our culture and values on others. There is essential theology that binds us together as Christians that are non-negotiables. But there are some non-essentials church practices and or theological differences that keep us divided that are rooted in middle-class values, Eurocentric values, and even free market capitalist thinking. And as I close, did Christ call us to a Christianity of comfort? Did he call us to a middle-class brand of Christianity? Is Christianity an exclusive club with an exclusive language with a certain level of education and a certain zip code? Did he call us did he call us to this safe, suburban, American-style Christianity? Of course he did not. And I want to ask you a question. Have you been redeemed? Have you been born again? Or are you dependent on church membership for justification? Let's make the main thing the main thing. Sometimes we need to hit a hard reset and reevaluate our spiritual life. Now I'm turning to the Baptist preacher. Then we must walk out our Christian life. Do we look like Jesus? Do we walk like Jesus? Are we examples of Christ? In verse 33 of our text, Christ encourage us, encourages us to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This should be our aim, the aim of the Christian, and not seek earthly treasures. We must seek the kingdom of God on our knees. We seek the kingdom of God through worship, through meditating on God's word for guidance. We must be properly equipped to go into the world and make disciples. Let the Holy Spirit lead and guide us. But in order to be led by the Spirit, we have to be filled by the Spirit. I heard Ephesians 5 and 19 state, and be not drunk with wine, wear in excess, but be filled with his Spirit. We are filled with his Spirit through seeking God in prayer. And as I take my seat, Christ's resurrection power gives us the strength to overcome this world system of materialism through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit grants us with the power in the heart to go outside of our own selfish ambitions and do for others. It was Christ, his work on the cross, and the power of the resurrection that saved me one day. When I was a young man out in the streets, when I was on my way to a devil's hell, I was unconverted. I was part of the sneaker culture. I was a part of the materialistic culture, and the Lord saved me. Amen. 
We would say it like this. He picked me up. He turned me around. He placed my feet on solid ground. Praise the Lord today. I was Paul on my own road to Damascus, Damascus, a materialistic Damascus. Have you been redeemed? God saw fit to save me. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply staying within, seeking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters he lifted me. Now safe am I. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. All my heart to him I give, ever to him I'll cling. In blessed presence live and ever his praises sing. Love so mighty, love so true, it merits my soul's best song. Faithful, loving service to him belongs. Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. If you'd like more information about our historic church, or you'd like to find out more about the gospel of Jesus, please visit our website at oldsouthnbpt.org. The peace of Christ be with you.